question, what is the best-known verse in the entire Bible? What is the best-known verse in the entire Bible? Genesis 1-1 has to be in the top five, I would say. Hold on, Gail, you're trying to steal my thunder from me here, smarty pants. Okay, let's start this over again. What is the best-known verse in the entire Bible? Uh, like I said, Genesis 1-1 is one that's well-known, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I would say maybe Psalm 23-1 is a well-known, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I would say Matthew 6-9 is well-known because it's the opening of the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. But I think the number one slot, as we've already heard, has to go to the very first verse in our study passage this morning, John 3.16. From football games and country songs to bracelets and tattoos, this verse, at least the reference itself, is found in all sorts of interesting places. In fact, if you didn't already know, it's printed right here at the bottom of my In-N-Out Burger cup, right? It's, it's right here, John 3.16. But while lots of people are familiar with the reference itself, thankfully, many more people, many others, have actually heard the entire verse. Some could probably even recite the verse to you, even if they're not faithful Church attenders, even if they don't profess themselves to be Christians, they could probably muster up at least most of that verse for you because they've heard it someplace. But fewer people know anything about the context of this well-known verse. And as most of you know, the context is critical when trying to understand what a verse means. True, John 3.16 is like a doorway into the heart of God and the purposes of God. A beautiful doorway that takes us, uh, that can take us deeper into Scripture. But that journey should begin with the context, right? The immediate context of this verse. So let's look together this morning at John chapter 3, verse 16. But let's also look at what I'd like to call John 3.16, the extended cut. (laughs) Like a director, right, who wants to make a movie without the studio telling him how long it has to be or whatever. He wants to put it, whatever he wants in there, he puts an extended or a director's cut out. Well, we're going to look at this fuller picture this morning of John 3.16 in its original fuller context. So turn there if you have not done so already to John chapter 3. We're continuing, of course, our study in the Gospel of John, a study that I've entitled, John and the Seven Signs of Jesus. Let me simply read through the passage this morning, which runs from verse 16 down to verse 21. There's, of course, more to the chapter, but we'll talk about that coming up in a few weeks. Even though Jesus just spoke in verse 15, beginning in verse 16, I would argue, and many scholars would argue, that what we have here in verse 16 is not Jesus, the words of Jesus. We have John offering theological, offering pastoral commentary 
on the previous verses or stories that he's included in, that involve Jesus. Now, this is not unusual. John breaks in many times in this book. John actually began the book by narrating and offering his insights into the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. It was John who identified the Son or the Word as the only, the one and only Son, as the one and only God who is at the Father's side. That's John's language that he uses, and we'll see that coming up. Uh, We even see this at the end of chapter 3, once again, in verses 31 through 36. Verse 30 is where John the Baptist, his words end. And then we have John commenting once again and helping us understand the relationship between John and Jesus. How they were part, both part of God's purposes. And we will see John breaking in and commenting again throughout this book. So that's what we have here is John uh, commenting on what Jesus has just told us in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3. So listen to what John tells us as he interrupts the flow here, as he breaks in. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his or her works should be exposed. But whoever does or practices, you could translate that, whoever practices what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, as we think about verse 16, this beloved verse, this well-known verse, as we think about it here in the context, one of the things that becomes apparent, that should be apparent to us, is the emphasis here on faith. The emphasis on faith in this passage. If we include verse 15, the verb is used five times in three verses. Verses 15, 16, and 18. And in verses 20 and 21, if you take a look at those again, we find faith being talked about, belief being talked about, In this image-laden language, that language is coming to the light. So let's use this theme of faith or trust or belief to work through John's teaching here. Before I do that, before we kind of dig in and, and follow this faith path, it's incredibly important that none of us miss 
the import of John's opening phrase in verse 16. For God so loved the world. Our familiarity with that verse, specifically the wording of that verse, can lead to assumptions. It can lead even to neglect. The stunning declaration that begins verse 16 is a declaration concerning the extent of God's love. Do you see that? John is declaring the extent of God's love, the magnitude of God's love, the depths of God's love. It could be rightly translated, for this is how much God loved the world. The language sometimes, because it's so familiar to us, and because it's not necessarily the way that we speak, sometimes we miss what John is saying here. For this is how much God loved the world. Not only is the object of God's love stunning. Imagine being a Jew listening to these words. God loves the world. God loves the world. What? We are his treasured possession taken from among the nations of the earth. But John is emphasizing the scope, the focus of God's love, God's love of the world. He's not only emphasizing that object, he's emphasizing the lengths to which his love was lavished on us. To think about that wording here, we could simply change the main nouns and maybe better understand because of in everyday circumstances like this. For the mother so loved her daughter that she gave her heart for transplant. That if the daughter accepts this from her, she will not experience cardiac failure, but will have the chance to live a healthy life. Wow, what a beautiful statement. Can you imagine that sacrifice? Or, for the rich man so loved the poor man that he gave all his money that if the poor man accepts this gift, he will not be taken to jail, but will be able to pay off his astronomical debt. Now, all of these kind of examples or stand-ins don't really measure up, right? They fail in certain ways, but they give us a sense of that language, for so, for so, for so, for God so loved the world. As John put it, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But please don't miss how John points us to Jesus. Do you see that? He is pointing us to Jesus, the manifestation of the magnitude of God's love for the world. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the magnitude of God's love for this world. We are called in this verse to believe in who? In Him. And if we're, uh, if we're unclear about who the Him is there, drop down to verse 18 and we will see the clarification there. It's spelled out talks, when John talks about belief in the name of the only Son of God. We are called to believe in Christ, to trust in Christ, to place our faith in Christ. Now, the formula here, it almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him, that's, that's it, whoever believes in Him, 
that should cause us to ask the question, what does John mean when he writes that? What does he mean when he says, whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him? This question about belief is one that the context can actually help us with. Remember that John, the writer, is interrupting the account here, isn't he? He's broken in. And why did he feel compelled to break into the storytelling, the giving of these accounts of what Jesus said and did? Well, he does so because he feels, I believe, that it's vitally important to elaborate on what Jesus just said in verses 14 and 15. Jesus made uh, appointed Nicodemus, this Jewish religious leader who came to him at night under the cover of darkness, come to, we don't know exactly what motivated Nicodemus to come, but we know that he did. And Jesus is trying to redirect him, trying to show him uh, the error of his thinking, of how he's framing the whole (laughs) identity of Jesus and what God is calling him to do. So, He gets to this point, Jesus does in this conversation, where he points this Jewish leader back to a story from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. So after complaining, once again, grumbling once again, the Israelites were grumbling about God's timing and his provision, the timing of his provision as they moved through the desert. After complaining, grumbling once again, this is what we read in Numbers 21, verses 6 through 9. Then Yahweh sent fiery, probably meaning poisonous, given the effect when it bites you, how it feels, right? So the Lord sent these poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned in their grumbling, in their complaining, in their lack of faith of God, who had provided over and over and over and over again for them. They had sinned, and they confessed that when the judgment of God comes upon them. For we have spoken against Yahweh, and we have spoken against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's no mistake that Jesus has pointed Nicodemus to this story. Why did he do so? Well, look again at verses 14 and 15 of John 3, where Jesus explains the relevance. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now that last bit sounds familiar, doesn't it? Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Israelites were saved by gazing upon that which was lifted up, right? They were saved by gazing upon that which was lifted up. And as I said in the previous message, they were called to look and live. 
That's what they were called to. But it wasn't a magical effect as if they just directed their eyeballs right at that place and all of a sudden there was a magical transference. No, undoubtedly the relevance of this Old Testament story is not simply the fact that something was lifted up, but that the people were called to, to trust what Moses told them from God. And they were called to look upon this bronze serpent believing that it was God's means of rescue. You see, some might have thought when they heard Moses say this, you're crazy, what are you talking about? Get the snake bite kid out of, you know, come on, what are you doing? Get me to the nearest urgent care or something. Why are you telling me to look at a bronze pole with a, with a poorly made sculpture of a snake on that? Remember, he had to make it really fast. <laughs> Who knows what this thing looked like? Why would, why would I do that? The people had to believe. They had to trust that this was God's appointed means of rescue for them in the face of judgment. I think that's exactly why John breaks in here. He breaks in here to unpack this Old Testament reference for his readers and by God's grace through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture for us this morning. He wants us to unpack this reference that Jesus has made. John doesn't want us, John doesn't want his readers, didn't want his readers to miss the same idea that Jesus did not want Nicodemus to miss as he shared that allusion to Numbers 21. And what does he not want us to miss? What does God not want us to miss this morning? The fact that we are saved only by trusting in that which God has provided. That which has been lifted up. That's how we're saved. For Nicodemus and for us, that is, as Jesus declares, the Son of Man. Jesus Christ. And it means trusting Him That means trusting Him in light of the Roman cross on which He was lifted up. Lifted up for us. On which He died for us. Did you notice how the context helps us here? When when it says in verse 16 that God gave His only Son, what does He mean by the word gave? Well, we already know now. We know what it means that He gave. It means that He gave over to death. He gave His Son over to death that He would be lifted up on that cross just as that bronze serpent so many hundreds of years ago was lifted up before the people. He also includes, of course, that includes the idea of sending the Son. We see that in verse 17, don't we? Where John talks about the sending of the Son. The sending and the sacrificing both seem to be part of what John is expressing here in verse 16. In fact, in his other writings, in one of his other writings, John touched on both the sending and sacrificing expressions of God's love. He wrote these beautiful words, 1 John 4, 8 through 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is is love in this the love of god was made manifest among us this is where we saw it 
This is how we, 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 we perceived it powerfully. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Want to know love? This is it. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and, again, sent His Son. Why? To be the propitiation, the satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Wow. But look at how, in verses 17 and 18, John continues to unpack verse 16 for us. Which, of course, is unpacking the illusion that Jesus gave. Allusion that Jesus gave. The reference that He gave to the Old Testament. Verses 17 and 18, John emphasizes and he expands on several ideas here. He expands on the idea of God loving the world, on perishing, and on eternal life. For those who were inclined to think among John's readers, for any of us who are inclined to think this morning that most people, especially those other people, right? Those other people. And we all have other people, right? Those people... For those inclined to think that they could and would only face the wrath of an angry God, John emphasized God's love for all. He wants to disabuse people to say, well, if the Son of God came into the world, He came in order to judge. He came in order to condemn. That's what they at least deserve. John says, no, 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 no. Why did He come? Why did He come? He came to rescue us. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. But we cannot exaggerate that emphasis on love and rescue here to the extent that we miss how John talks about condemnation in verse 18. That is often the danger with John 3.16. That we exaggerate the emphasis, an emphasis on love and rescue, salvation, So that we miss any talk of condemnation. Listen to this statement. John 3.16 does emphasize God's love. Not in order to do away with condemnation. But to highlight God's path out from under condemnation. The man or woman who trusts in Christ. And his death. Him lifted up. Is not condemned. Why is that? Because in the lifting up, Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus was condemned in our place. But according to John in verse 18, the man or woman who does not believe is condemned already. You see, this verse is is not condemnation free. It talks about condemnation, but it does so in the right terms. It frames the conversation correctly. It grounds condemnation and balances it in light of those or in the face of those who would want to put the emphasis on the the judgment that God brings. But there is condemnation for those who do not believe as John makes clear here. How do we know that the person who does not believe is condemned already? Because John provides evidence... Of their pre-existing condition. 
No, not a pre-existing condition that your insurance carrier would want to know about. A pre-existing condition of condemnation. Spiritual condemnation. When these individuals are offered eternal life through faith in the precious Lamb of God, such a person does what? They do not accept. They do not receive. They do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Why is that? Because it gives evidence. They do so because it gives evidence of their spiritual condition of condemnation. John was clear about this kind of rejection. He even began the book with it in chapter 1. Only 10 verses into the, the entire gospel, he writes this. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So when John talks about perishing in John 3.16, he's not saying that we're like milk. We're not perishable because we're just prone to spoil. No, we're perishable because the perfect justice of God deems us condemned as sinners, as spiritual rebels as those who would rather play God than serve God. We stand guilty, all of us. But don't forget how that also informs the phrase in 3.16, that phrase, eternal life. And this is the first time the phrase appears in the entire gospel. Eternal life, right here. Remember what this tells us about eternal life. Among other things, eternal life is a life free forever from condemnation. Praise God. Hallelujah. Forever free from condemnation. So, what drives these two responses? What drives the response of belief and the response of unbelief? That's what John goes on to explain in the final three verses of our passage this morning. Remember John's, remember this, John's commentary here is not just tied to the story of Nicodemus. I believe it's actually tied to the entire Passover section here. So that's a section that actually began in chapter 2, verse 13. Everything that took place on this first Passover that the Gospel of John talks about, everything included is part of what John is reflecting on here. Why do I say that? Because John seems to talk about, seems to be alluding to the resistance of the religious leaders to Jesus that was demonstrated after his clearing and cleansing of the temple. He also seems to be pointing us back to the crowds, even though they believed in the signs that Jesus was doing, he would not entrust himself to these people because it says that he knew what was in all people. He knew what was in all people. The darkness. So in light of that, look again at John's assessment in verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. Here it is. The light. What is the light? Who is the light? It's the sun. 
Just look at chapter 1, verse 9. The light came into the world. Remember, John wasn't the light. What did John do? He came to bear witness about the light. That's Jesus. So who is the light? It's Jesus. The light, Jesus, the Son, the Word made flesh, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. How do we know that they love the darkness? Come on, they crucified the light. They killed him. They murdered him. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Why? He doesn't come into the light. Why? Lest his works, lest her works be exposed. What drives this unbelief John is describing here? The fact that we as fallen sinners love the darkness rather than the light. Why do we love the darkness? Because the darkness hides our sin. It hides our me-centeredness in a God-centered universe. We do not want our works. We do not want our thoughts. We do not want our desires to be exposed, do we? We do not want to face the reality that we are rebels. We do not want to be honest about the ugliness of our sin. We do not want to stop sinning. Therefore, we love the darkness rather than the light. Now, if that is true, right? If we can connect that statement with the knowledge of Jesus in chapter 2, where it said that Jesus knew all people, He knew what was in us, then how can anyone have eternal life? Look at the way that John is speaking here. He's speaking in broad, general terms. People love the darkness. Jesus knew what was in all people. That's every single one of us. How can anyone have eternal life? Well, John answers that question in verse 21. But whoever does or practices what is true comes to the light so that it may be clear, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, at first, you read that and you think, well, it sounds like John is saying that people who are already walking in the light come to the light. That's not what he's saying. Remember, coming to the light is just another way of talking about coming to Christ in faith. This whole passage is about belief. To come to the light is to receive Christ. It's to come to Him in faith. It's to look and live like the Israelites who looked to that serpent. Sinners don't come to faith in Jesus in order to get a pat on the back. No, they come as a result of what God has already been doing in them. Did you see that here? Right? They come as a result of what God is already doing in them. As we saw in the first half of this chapter, God through His Holy Spirit is the one who gives us, using the 
the, the phrase that Jesus, the imagery that Jesus gave Nicodemus. God is the one that gives new birth. The new birth that we desperately need. Here's yet another description of that new birth. As God is working in somebody who begins to practice the truth, who begins to get on that path of seeking truth. And when they come face to face with the lights, they receive the light. They want the light. They want Christ. Just like those described in chapter 1 of this book, John the baptizer, Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, right? All of these guys who are described here who want the light. They're coming to the light to receive the light. So, brothers and sisters, friends, what does this extended cut of John 3.16 reveal to us about this well-known verse? If I simply looked at that one verse, there's beautiful and powerful things there. A gateway into the depths of God's heart and purposes as revealed in the entire Scriptures. But when we look at the context, we get so much more. This is, this is a statement that I believe sums up what we learn when we think about John 3.16 in the context. Though we love the darkness, God loved the world. So much that He's shown His light, the light of His Son, into our darkness. Though we stood condemned, God loved the world. So much that He gave His Son to bear our condemnation. Therefore, we are called to faith in Jesus, the one lifted up. Not to doing, not called to doing, but to believing that He did it all on our behalf. And as we receive that gift of eternal life, we can rejoice that even our saving faith is His gift, evidence of a new birth. Isn't that beautiful? Unpacking, seeing everything there in the context for this well-known verse, beloved verse that is even more beloved, even more precious when we rightly understand it in the fullness of its context. The main question that you need to ask yourself this morning, the main question that you need to consider is this. Does this true story shape my everyday story with its truth? Does this true story shape my everyday story with its truth? Does it undo me? Does it stir me? Does it comfort me? Does it motivate me? Does it guide me? Does it feed me? Does it shape me? If it doesn't, then we need to consider the healthiness of our faith. The very emphasis John has given us in this passage. If it does shape us, then think about one of the ways that it should shape us. This is not what we usually think about when we read this verse. But we absolutely should, among other things. We should love as God loves. We should love as God loves. Specifically, we should love the world as God loves the world. John, in his later letter we call 1 John, will warn us about those who love the world. 
right? The love of the world. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about God's love for the world. We should love the world as God loves the world. Now, we should love to the extent that God loves the world. We should love in a way, not not that we will ever reach that goal of loving to the extent that God loves the world, but that should be what we strive for, to love to the extent that God loves the world. And our lives should be a reflection of John 3.16 if we are imitators of God, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. If we are imitators of God, then our lives should embody John 3.16. So much so that people could say, for Bryce so loved the world that he, for Jan so loved the world that she, for Tim so loved the world that he, for Stephen so loved the world that he lived a life of Christ-like sacrifice lived a life of godly grace and compassion and mercy because he or she was reflecting the God they served. The God who was their father now through new birth. To love the world as God loves the world is not to love, at least for us, without exception. That is, doesn't mean loving every single individual in the world, since that is not even possible for finite creatures like you and I. We don't know all the people in the world. We never are going to know, never could know all the people in the world. No, it means this. It means loving the world without exclusion. Loving the world without exclusion, that is, loving every single person we meet along the way, no matter who they are, no matter whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether they look and talk like us or not, whether they help or hurt us, whether they are hard or easy to love, whether in our estimation they deserve it or not. For God so loved the world. Therefore, Bryce should so love the world. Therefore, you should so love the world. We do this because that's how we've been loved, according to John. Because that's the nature of God, the God who has given us new birth as His children. Because that's what love is. We can accept cheap worldly counterfeits of love. And there are even religious cheap Christian counterfeits of love that are not truly the love of Christ that are not truly marked by that which distinguishes God's love from man's love, God's true love from the world's counterfeit love. And we do this. We love as God loves. We do so hoping that those that we love will know the truth of John 3.16. It's one thing to hold up a sign at a football game or wear a t-shirt with the verse. It's quite another thing to embody this verse in the life of another person. Have you had people in your life who have embodied John 3.16 to you? That kind of love that the Father demonstrated in giving His Son, you felt it, you saw it, you experienced it, you benefited 
from it through that person? I hope that you have. I hope that you can be that in someone else's life. Again, that's just one example of that question I asked you. Is this true story shaping your everyday story with its truth? The only way that it's going to be doing that is if we are remembering the story, preaching the story to ourselves, teaching the story to ourselves, waking up and giving thanks for the story to God. Brothers and sisters, friends, let's take a minute and let's thank God for this gift that we've heard about this morning, that we've been reminded of this morning. The lifting up, the one who was lifted up as we are celebrating with our brothers and sisters around the world in a very special way this week. This one who was lifted up, he is our life. He is our hope. And may we live this day and every day this week like we believe that's true. Believing this true story. Why don't we pray and ask Him to help us with that, to shape us according to His love powerfully proclaimed through John 3.16. Let's pray together.